Welcome to Quick Hits, the most intermittent podcast in the universe and the only one that gets you smartenized. Today's episode, Economics for Democrats, Part 2. Part 1 was the very first podcast that I recorded back in 2005, Economics for Democrats. So, we're about 15 years later. It's time for an update. Now, there's plenty of bad economics from Republicans, too. But for this episode, we're just going to concentrate on the bad economics of Democrats, maybe do Republicans later, who knows. We're going to look at the policies that have been proposed and are being proposed by various Democratic candidates. The first one, one that everybody knows about, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on this one, is a high federal minimum wage. And if you're listening to this show, you know enough about why that's a bad idea. You've probably seen or read some of the articles about places that it's been put in place and the results of marginal businesses going out of business, uh, businesses that were only able to stay in business by cutting back hours or changing people from full-time to part-time, and also businesses running into the situation where their employees started asking for fewer hours because they were getting food stamps or some other benefit. And if you go a dollar or two over the limit, then you lose a whole lot. So to make an extra buck to lose $400 worth of food stamps, that's not good math. And you can't really blame them for saying that uh, they need uh, fewer hours so they don't go over those numbers. Now, before we talk about their proposals, All of their proposals are insanely expensive. The way we're running things currently now, we've got a trillion dollars a year that's being added to the deficit. But they're going to fix that by spending more money. And they're going to get that money primarily two ways, they tell us. The first is through raising income taxes on the wealthy, and the second is a wealth tax. Let's take a moment to look at what raising income taxes does for the amount of money coming in. There's something called Hauser's Law, and it's based on studying the federal income compared to the national GDP. And what Hauser found in looking at the numbers from the 30s on up to currently is that no matter what the tax rate is, the rate of federal tax income to GDP is always around 19.5%. Sometimes it's a little lower. Once in a while, it's a little higher. But if there's a really high tax rate, they bring in 19.5%. If there's a low tax rate, they bring in 19.5%. Now, this makes sense if you think about it. Because if somebody is making a lot of money, they've got a lot of income, if they've got a low tax rate, they can increase their wealth best by making more money. 
But if the tax rate is enormous, and at times it's been as high as 90%, then their time and effort is better spent protecting the money that they've got coming in. And things that you do to shield yourself from tax liability are typically much less productive than the things you do to make money in the first place. So we know that's not going to work, although that has never stopped these folks. But they're going to augment this with a wealth tax, where we apply a tax to every asset that a wealthy person owns. Now, just one thing to keep in mind, they are saying this is only going to be the top 1% or the top half percent that they're going to do this to. But that was the same argument that was made when income tax was first put in. It's only a 3% tax, and only 3% of the people will have to pay it. And five years later, it was 70%, and now everybody pretty much pays it. So this wealth tax works by saying, okay, what is your total wealth? What is your assets worth? And then we're going to charge you a percentage of that. Now, if your wealth is tied up in land, that may mean that you have to sell some of this land in order to pay the tax. Let's say you bought Apple stock early on and it, you've got $5 million worth of it now that you paid, you know, half a million dollars for it 10 years ago. I'm too lazy to actually go in and look up what the, the numbers would be. But you're sitting there, you've got this $5 million and they're going to say, well, you, you, you got to pay on that, even though you have not realized the profit, you just want to let it sit there. Sorry, you're going to have to pay a tax on it. Can you imagine how much work it would take to determine to the dollar what you're worth? I mean, even us middle-class people listening to this, how long would that take to do? And for a wealthy person that may have artwork and real estate and lots of things that have maybe gone up in value or maybe haven't gone up in value, but they're things that they pay taxes on their money before they bought it. Well, now they bought it. Now they have to pay taxes on top of that as well. Warren was originally saying it would be a 2% tax. That means that a wealthy person would look at losing 10% of everything they owned in five years. She later said, no, it's actually going to have to be more like 6%. Ah, so now a wealthy person is going to lose 30% of their wealth in five years. Wealthy people generally did not get wealthy by being stupid or being bad at math or economics. They're going to pack up and leave. Oh, you're going to take 30% of everything that I own in five years? 60% of it in, in 10 years? I, they're going to pack up and leave. And we don't have to theorize on this because we've actually seen it in practice. 12 different European countries instituted a wealth tax. Now only three still have it. Why? Because the effect was devastating on the economy. Take France, for instance. They got rid of their wealth tax a couple of years ago because 42,000 millionaires fled the country over the course of five years. Imagine the detrimental effect of that on any economy. Just for fun, what would happen if we taxed all 
billionaires 100% of everything they own. Hmm, that would let us run the U.S. government for about nine months. And then, of course, uh, they got nothing to tax for the next year. So, as with all of their plans, the math just doesn't work. And when you put some human nature in there, the fact that people tend to fight back when you go to steal their stuff, any kind of a wealth tax is going to be a disaster. So let's take a look at some of the things that they are planning. These are uh, kind of across the board. They're Bernie, they're Warren, they're a couple of other things. And I'm going to include one here by de Blasso, even though he dropped out of the race a long time ago, because it was so exquisitely stupid and showed such an intense ignorance of basic economics and how the economy works. We'll get to that in a minute. So, first thing we got here on the list, free tuition. Everybody gets to go to college for free. Yeah, how's that going to work? Who's going to pay for it? There is no free. Somebody has to pay for it. And we know that whenever the federal government pays for anything, they pay far too much, and they get far too little back in return. But we're going to spend trillions of dollars giving everybody a free education, whether they deserve it or not, whether they're qualified or not. And I'm guessing that given the elite attitudes of these folks, this is only going to cover college and university. It's not going to cover trade schools. And trade schools, for an awful lot of people, are a great path to financial independence. Carpenters and plumbers and electricians all have jobs that cannot be farmed out overseas. And they're in high demand, and the pay is decent. It's also the kind of thing, if you want to run your own business, it's the kind of thing that lends itself to that very well, because uh, I work with contractors a lot, and I see this happen. They work for somebody else, and they decide, I'm going to start out on my own, and they create their own businesses. There are thousands of them just in my area alone. So free tuition is going to be accompanied by a canceling of student debt. We've got about $1.6 trillion sitting out there in student debt. And a lot of them are for degrees that are absolutely worthless. If you have a degree in, say, women's studies, the only thing that really qualifies you for is a job at Subway, where all day long, people will be saying, make me a sandwich. And that $1.6 trillion has to come from somewhere. Well, guess who it's going to come from? It's going to come from all of us taxpayers, including those of us who spent years, maybe decades, working and struggling and sacrificing to pay off our student loans. Oh, and now we get to pay off everybody else's as well. I don't think that's going to fly real well, especially with anybody that's paid off a loan. And with all of these issues, they're asking the wrong question. The question they're asking is, how can we cover the high costs of college, when what they should be asking is, why is the cost of college so high? Why has it risen 500% above inflation over the past decade? 
It was real simple. You start with an 18, 19, 20-year-old kid. You say, hey, you can get all the money you need. We'll just bring it in by the wheelbarrow fall. And that allows schools to raise their prices on everything. I saw one girl, she had a chemistry book, and it was designed to be put in a binder, and it was 150 bucks. And it didn't even come with the binder. You had to go out and buy a binder and put it in there. If you were to shut down federally guaranteed student loans entirely, there would be absolute chaos on campuses for a year or two until they figured it out. And hey, they're smart people. Let them figure it out. There's all different kinds of ways that they can charge for their education. Let's force them to be creative and stop shoveling money into a system that produces degrees that are often worthless. Housing for all. Bernie wants to do housing for all. Guaranteed housing for all. Hey folks, have you ever been to a housing project? Yeah, I think that's all we need to say about that. One of the things he wants to do is put in rent control. Rent control is another thing where we have a very long history of seeing how it works and how it doesn't work. And what it does, it simply removes all incentive for landlords to build new apartments or to make new apartments from old buildings. There's no reason even to take your existing apartments and uh, make them better. Landlords frequently will do that. They'll take an apartment that they can get $1,200 for and they'll spend a couple thousand dollars printing it up and painting it up and making it a $1,500 property or even more. The reason, though, that the rent is too damn high It's a simple issue of supply and demand. When regulations, which are frequently local, make it much harder to create or maintain or improve apartments, there's going to be fewer of them and they'll be more expensive. And if you say, well, we're going to regulate how much you can charge and how much you can raise the rent and we're going to completely control that for you, well, all that incentive has gone away and you even get to the point where the money coming in from a rental property is so low and the profit is so little that they stop maintaining it. And then you end up with housing that just falls apart. Oh, and we're also going to have universal child care. Yeah, you don't have to take care of your kids anymore. Government's going to do it for you. That'll be fine. And, you know, yeah, whatever it costs, we'll do that. No problem. Universal health care. Medicare for all. Yes, the government is going to take care of your health from the cradle to the grave. Not a problem. No problem. We'll give you everything you need to be healthy. Of course, if we're paying for your health, then we really have the right to come in there and uh, tell you how to live. Wouldn't want you to do any unhealthy things that might cost us too much money. The left loves to point at some countries where they do seem to have dealt with it pretty well. They do have a universal health care and it runs okay. Typically, these are pocket-sized countries. Countries with populations that are smaller than our larger cities. And this, of course, they believe will scale up beautifully for 325 million people. However, if you 
take a look at socialized health care in most countries, it's really a mess. If you've got something simple, you got a, a burst appendix or a broken leg, you go in, you get it fixed. It doesn't cost you anything. You're happy. But if you need anything more involved, more advanced, well, then you got a long wait. In fact, there are a lot of little hospitals and clinics along the northern border of the United States that cater mostly to Canadians who are crossing the border to get health care, paying for it with cash because they don't want to wait three weeks or eight weeks or 23 weeks uh, to get some simple procedure done or some simple test. Once again, they're asking the wrong question. They're asking, how can we pay these really high health care rates when what they should be asking is, why is health care so expensive? Let's take one thing that I'm quite familiar with, insulin. I have to take insulin. And my insurance covers it, so it's a low out-of-pocket cost for me for copays. There was a time not too long ago when I was going to be out of insurance for a period of time. So I was looking at what it would cost for me to just buy this stuff out of pocket. The insulin pens that I use, they come in a box of five, and the retail price of that box is $600. I can get the same box from Canada for $125. Same exact thing. And if I were close to the Mexican border, I could get it for about 75 bucks. And the companies are making a profit on that level. So why do they get away with charging $600 for a box of this? Well, it's because there are only three companies in the U.S. that make insulin, and we prohibit importing it into the country from other places where it's cheaper. Why only three? Because if you wanted to start an insulin company, the estimated time and price is $3 billion and 12 years to get through all of the FDA's nonsense in order to be able to get the lines going and to start cranking some insulin out. Who's going to invest $3 billion and spend 12 years doing that? The reason why healthcare is so expensive, one of the reasons, is the FDA foot dragging. It now costs $3 billion and takes about five years to get a drug on the market. And only about 60% of the drugs actually make it to the market. The others fall away in the testing. By comparison, let's take a look at color TVs. When I was a kid, having a color TV was a real status thing because they cost three months pay. And now they're so cheap, the poor people have them. You go to Walmart, you get a decent one for a day's pay, two days pay. What kind of regulations have there been on TVs? Uh, eh, hardly any. Hardly any. Mainly they can't interfere with other electronics and they've got to have a chip in there that will do subtitles. And I don't know, I think you still have to have the sensor chip built in so you can uh, block your kids watching stuff. But other than that, They've been free to do whatever they want. They've been free to innovate. And look what we got. We got something that costs three months pay, now costs two days pay, and is vastly superior to what was available before. 
The other thing that drives up the cost of health care is the fact that the government pays about half of the medical bills in this country, and they are prohibited from negotiating for better prices. That was a little gift that George Bush gave to pharmaceutical companies and the medical community. A lot of places restrict opening new medical facilities. You have to have a certificate of need to say there's a need for, well, let's say, I was reading a story about one guy who wanted to have MRIs, just do MRIs, and he was going to be able to do them for a couple hundred bucks a piece. And all of the local hospitals said, no, we don't need that, and uh, refused to allow him uh, the certificate of need that he needed to put it in there. These are the kinds of things that drive the prices up and keep them high. There should be six or eight or 15 companies in this country producing insulin. And if there were, that $600 worth of insulin would probably be 50 or 60 bucks, something that most of us could pay out of pocket. Next on our list, UBI, the universal basic income. We're going to give every single person a thousand bucks a month. I would like an extra thousand bucks a month. That would make a big difference for me. That would certainly make life easier and uh, I could spend a little more on luxuries. Who wouldn't want a thousand dollars a month? Even some economists who are hardcore capitalists like Milton Friedman and F.A. Hayek, have advocated for a universal basic income. The premise is that this is necessary because sometime in the near future, all of our jobs are going to disappear. Automation, innovation, all of it is going to just destroy every job everywhere, and so we will be sitting at home depending on the UBI for a living. Let's take a little closer look at that premise, because that premise has been used since the days of the Luddites smashing loom machines. Let's just take a look at one small sector of the economy, telephones. Back when AT&T had a government-enforced monopoly on telephone service, they employed, at their peak, 100,000 telephone switchboard operators, mostly women, and they sat in front of this big patch bay and plugged in, physically plugged in, various patch cords to move phone calls around the country. When AT&T switched to automated switching, that was the end of 100,000 jobs. What happened as a result of that, though? AT&T employs over a quarter of a million people, and Verizon has 135,000 employees. And that's just two of the major phone companies. That's not counting the number of people who are manufacturing phones. Hell, phone cases is a billion-dollar industry, none of which could be foreseen when they were laying off all of those telephone operators. We can be absolutely certain 
the jobs will be eliminated with technology. But we can also be sure that the new technologies are going to create new jobs, and usually far more than the ones that it replaces. Oh, but this time is different. This time we'll all be unemployed. Yeah, I don't think so. This time it's different has always been the excuse of anyone fighting technology. Now, one claim about the UBI is that, well, it's going to save money because we're going to eliminate all the other government programs. Tell that to someone who's collecting 1500 bucks or 1200 bucks a month from Social Security, and they have Medicaid, maybe another benefit or two, and I'm going to say, oh, well, we're going to give you 1000 bucks a month, and that's going to replace everything. I don't think that's going to fly amongst the voting block. Not too much at all. And then one last thing on the UBI. Have you ever heard of any government program that got smaller over time? No, 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 no. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. A thousand bucks isn't enough. We need twelve hundred. Uh, twelve hundred's not enough. We need fifteen hundred. And on and on and on until we're completely bankrupt. The next one was proposed by Bill de Blasso, who dropped out of the race. Nobody else has picked this one up. But it's so exquisitely bad. So wonderfully horrible that I've got to talk about it just a bit. De Blasso wanted to implement a robot tax on companies that automated or did anything that would replace workers with technology. Any business owner who adopted any technology that displaced any of the workers would have to provide the worker with adequate replacement employment, and if they didn't, they would have to forward immediately five years' worth of payroll taxes to Big Brother. He wanted to create a new federal bureaucracy called the Federal Automation and Worker Protection Agency, FAWPAW. Great acronym, isn't it? And their job would be to regulate automation growth and oversee its effect on employment. So, if you were, say, running a landscaping business, you got a small landscaping business, you got a few employees, and a backhoe comes up for sale on Craigslist, it's a good price, and it would really help your business. It can dig a lot of holes a lot faster than employees can. But can you get it? Because if you do, you're replacing employees, even employees you haven't hired yet. You'd have to get permission from a federal agency in order to expand your business. And this would happen in virtually every business that's out there. Just absolutely insane. And it shows such a complete ignorance of basic economics and how businesses work that it's just kind of stunning how stupid it is. And now he's back to running New York City. The guy that runs New York City thinks we should tax anybody who tries to use any kind of automation to improve their business. And now we come to 
the last of the things on my list here. It's the cruelest, it's the meanest, reparations. We're going to pay reparations to black people because they've been treated poorly throughout history, especially with slavery, but you know, right on up through Jim Crow laws and whatever. The idea behind reparations is that your great-grandfather, or maybe great-great-grandfather, did nasty things to my great-great-grandfather, and so you owe me money. Now, when you put it like that, it sounds pretty stupid. And, frankly, anybody with any ethnic background at all can point to oppression and bad treatment of their ancestors. So, everybody should be entitled to this. But it's not going to happen. And usually when you say reparations, it's speaking specifically to black people. And here's why it's so nasty. It is never, ever, ever going to happen. Nobody put up with it. All right? You're going to sit there and say, oh, we're going to give every black person X amount of money for reparations. What should that amount be? Should it be everybody that's 18 or older? Should it be a recurring thing? No, it's... It's not going to happen. First of all, we don't have the money. But the Democrats are teaching a generation of people, and I mean, it's been going on for a while. They've been making this noise for a while. And a certain percentage of folks who listen to this are going to say, yeah, yeah, I'm owed reparations. They owe me money. White people owe me money. What does that do to your psyche? What does that do to your worldview? To go through life feeling that you have been ripped off and people owe you money. And because you're never going to get it, you're going to be permanently angry. But the Democrats don't care. So what if they make a lot of people miserable? As long as they get their votes, really that's all that matters to them. So that's just a partial list. Oh, one thing I didn't have on the list that I forgot about, Bernie wants to guarantee employment for everybody. And if you don't have the skills or the gumption to get a job, he's going to give you one with the federal government. Isn't that just what we need? More government workers? I was once hired as a contractor. This was not federal. This was state. But I got to spend quite a bit of time in the office of a state government agency. They had hired four of us to image 30 computers and install them. And they hired us for six months. Imaging and installing 30 computers shouldn't take more than two guys two weeks to do. But why did they hire four of us for six months? Well, it was because we were actually there to do the help desk's job. The help desk consisted of people who, eh, they just didn't do much of anything. I had left my tools home one day and had to borrow a toolkit from one of the guys at their help desk. And it was pristine. I mean, it looked like the tools had never been taken out of their slots. There were no scratches on them. There was nothing that showed that anyone had been using them. We were getting paid about twice the going rate. And we were working for an agency that was making probably half as much as we were. So there's three times the going rate. 
and we were replacing employees who were being paid. So that's four or five times the state was paying for what they should have been able to get out of the people who were supposed to be working there. About half the people in the office actually worked. They don't work too hard because there was no money in it, but they worked more because it was less boring than just sitting around. And the other half just sat around. And Bernie wants to pay people to do that. Yeah, brilliant idea. Just kind of makes you wonder if any of the politicians on the left, any of them at all, know anything at all about economics. I mean, I'm certainly no expert. I kind of follow it as a hobby. I've read a few books and discuss it and listen to a few podcasts about it. But I can sit here with my lack of expertise and easily see just how stupid, impractical, and dangerous to the economy every single one of these proposals are. You don't even have to give it a lot of thought. But it's beyond them. They don't know. Or they do know. And they're lying about it. And hey, who ever heard of a politician lying to us? And that's it for this episode of the Quick Hits Podcast. If you've learned a little something, if you've changed your mind, or even if you can just understand a different point of view without necessarily agreeing with it, congratulations, you've been smartnized. folks, I want to thank you for listening. I hope that you appreciate that I'm doing you a favor by doing this so seldom, you see. Because there's so many podcasts out there that come out five days a week. Or three days a week and they're two or three hours long. That's a lot of time. You just can't keep up with them all. The Quick Hits Podcast, only releasing a couple of episodes a year, makes your life easy. So tell your friends. For those of you who are kicking in money on Patreon, I appreciate it. I go out and buy a nice cigar with it. And that leaves nothing more for me to say, except that the Quick Hits Podcast is a journal of one man's opinion and should not be taken too seriously. Seriously.